Okay, everybody. Uh, welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, this is this is perhaps the movie that I have been waiting for, uh, like no other in all of 2018. And this is Damien Chazelle's first man, uh, the life story of, or most of the life story of Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, essentially played by Ryan Gosling uh, and all of his different ages that we see him. Uh, Peter, welcome. Welcome. I didn't think you'd be that interested in this. I thought you were waiting for the like, you know, the next Disney film. Right, right, come right. Out. Uh, wild beasts and where to find them, or whatever it's called. Uh, well, that, um, that's a, that, that's not Disney. That's another. Oh wait, maybe it is. It probably is. It's all Disney in the end. Um, do you want to give a brief summary, and then we'll sort of get down to it? I guess so, you just say he lands on the moon. <laughs> this movie's about Neil Armstrong. There's a summary. It's sort of, it, it basically is biographical movie about Neil Armstrong that displays essentially it, it's center. It really shows the whole, his, his trip as an astronaut. So it starts with him as a test pilot, an X-15 test pilot in 1961. And it ends with his return from Apollo 11 from the moon in 1969 and uh, basically follows his, um, I don't know if you'd call it ascent, his development, um, his, his story as an astronaut, the, the story of the other astronauts as sort of seen through his viewpoint, the story of his family and his personal life. And it tries to, I think, give you a sense of what, something about his character and his emotional makeup um, in, a, in a man who is, was famously uh, reticent. Um, you know, so, so I think that's the, really what the movie's about. Yeah, I think reticence is a good word. I mean, some people described Armstrong as a recluse, and he wasn't a recluse. You know, he was teaching and giving talks and lectures, but... You know, he wouldn't talk about landing on the moon. He would give a lecture about, like, you know, the shape of the landing skid on the X-15. Like, that, that, was the, that was, like, the type of thing that he would talk about. You know what I mean? And, it, and if you weren't an engineer, he wasn't so interested in talking to you from a lot of what I've read. I mean, I think he did not like public life, but he was fascinated with his profession. But he had really no, you know, unlike, for example, um, John Glenn, who was very comfortable in public life and, and had other aspirations right, beyond I, aviation. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, and you know, and he was a Senator for decades, you know, right. But I think, um, I think that Armstrong disliked public life as much as John Glenn liked it. And, um, you know, the two are similar in some sense that when, after they, achieved their big achievement, you know, in Glenn's case was the first American to orbit the earth in, um, in the Mercury program early on. And then, uh, you know, Armstrong, obviously the first man to set foot on the moon. Um, then the two of them basically retired from NASA right afterward. And in, you know, in Glenn's case, he retired and pursued a public career and ended up as a U.S. Senator from Ohio for, a, for decades. You know, he had many terms a successful senator and and in, in in armstrong's case he retired and became a professor you know right at, he was at the I think university of cincinnati yeah and you know it's interesting in both glenn and armstrong um you know glenn had one flight and then although he much much later on he had a shuttle flight you know when he was essentially brought back as a sort of special astronaut but he only had one flight as a, a sort of mainstream astronaut armstrong had two right but after their famous flights, NASA did not want them to fly anymore because they were much more useful for public appearances and propaganda and funding NASA. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons uh, Glenn left NASA was that they, he essentially knew, I'm never going to fly again. Yeah. Like, they need me more down here than up there. And, and if I'm not going to fly again, what's the point? Um, this book, is, sorry, this movie is based on, I guess we should say this is based on James Hansen's uh, biography of uh, Armstrong of the same name, uh, which came out a little over a decade ago, I guess 2005. Have you read it? 
No, I, you know, I, it's one of those things I probably just slipped through and I don't think we really talked about it very much because we sort of, it must've been one of the books we didn't talk about because I probably would have read it. Yeah, um, it's, if, it's very good. So I read it. it when it came out. I actually bought it in hardcover, and I almost never buy a book in hardcover, but I bought this in hardcover. And, you know, what's what's almost as interesting as the book is the story of how the book got done. Yeah. Um, and I've listened to some interviews with Hansen, and Hansen said that, you know, there had been biographies of Armstrong, but none that he had cooperated on or none that he had officially sanctioned. And then he reached out to Armstrong and said, I'd you know, I'm a serious guy. I've I've worked for NASA. I've done some work in this field, and I've written about aviation for a very long time. And this is when Armstrong was, I think, in his 70s. Yeah. And he said, I, I'd really like to do your, your autobiography. And then Armstrong wrote him a note basically saying, thanks, and I'm not interested. And then he kind of kept circling back to Armstrong, and he ultimately sent Armstrong a copies of all his other books and basically said look, this is how I write, and I know you're interested in engineering. I will focus on the engineering aspects of all your work. And Hansen says that he thinks that that's what kind of got Armstrong to agree, is that the book would be about the engineering as much as it was about him. Um, and then the yeah. book is based on about 55 hours of interviews between Armstrong and Hansen, where he would go to his house and sit down with him, and they would ask questions. And then in between their meetings, he would run around the country and find the other people who were present for the events Armstrong described and get their version of things. And that's how the book came together. The book's pretty thick. Yeah, the book and, is, and, and I'm and, holding and, it in my hand. I pulled my copy off the shelf. It's, it's just shy of 800 pages. Yeah, and, and Hansen was uh you know it was a professor at auburn in in alabama you know he's an academic so he, he i think he was able to approach you know armstrong in a way that was that that suggested his bona fides you know he sent him his writing as you said and he 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 didn't come from this the sort of ghostwriter um side of things and you know he he was able to sort of present a reasonable argument that he had a real historical interest in writing it rather than just trying to make money or be a ghostwriter sure hansen said in the interview i heard he said that he kind of fell into writing about space because he um he had just gotten his phd which i guess is in literature and he was sort of looking for something to write and then nasa cold called him and said would he write it a particular history that the government wanted done. And so that's how he fell into writing about technology and yeah. space. Um, so I have to tell you that this was not at all the movie I was expecting. I don't know what you thought of it, but this is, you know, I mean, I, I think without hyperbole, I've seen every astronaut movie uh, <laughs> and, and I've read every astronaut biography. Like literally I have dozens of these astronaut biographies on my shelf. And this was, I thought, very different in sort of feel and tone than I was expecting. Um, I mean, this, is, this isn't really so much about the Armstrong and the space program. Like, the whole thing is sort of a tone poem on Armstrong's personality more than it's about anything else. Yeah. It's about Armstrong's distance from those around him, you know, what kind of person he was, what it was like to be such an introvert at the center of such a public event. Um, and, and you know, the movie is called First Man. The film could be called First Person because unlike, I think, almost any other astronaut movie I've seen, so much of this is filmed from his perspective physically. I mean, the opening scene is him flying the X-15. Yep. And almost that entire sequence is just looking through the canopy. What's not first person is close-up. Like this, I've, I haven't seen a movie. This movie has so many close-ups. It's almost like a video production rather than a cinematic production. Like, mm. you know, it, it's, it's amazingly, you know, they're, very, they're not even any, like that many mid shots, just sort of establishing shots in between close-ups, but there's a and million. The, 
Exactly. And the moon landing, I kept waiting for sort of a bigger sense of the moon landing. And the moon landing is filmed in the lunar module with the camera right in their faces or looking out the triangular windows of the lunar module. And and they filmed the lunar module with all the lights off in it. So they're just really yeah. illuminated by the instruments on the, the dash. I have no idea what it was like when they actually landed or not. But I mean, that was a very different moon landing scene than I've ever seen done. I liked that aspect of it, though, because, you know, he didn't explain a lot, but he shows what instruments they're looking at. Not only does he show instruments, but he shows when when something happens, he shows the relevant instrument, like the fuel gauge, you know, for when he when the when he's almost right, when runs they're, out they're of, getting low on fuel. Right. And, um, and then, you know, and he shows the rotation rate when, when he's spinning up, when Gemini 8's spinning out of control. And, right. uh, and by the way, the Gemini 8 event is almost fully shown out the window as right. well. Right. It's, and they had those little a lot tiny of windows. No. Yeah. And you know, the, what movie did this remind you of in terms of effects? This, this movie screamed another movie at me. Uh, what was the, the orbital, uh. One, what's the movie about the um, um, it had very realistic uh, Are you thinking CG. about gravity? Yeah, I'm thinking oh, about the, no, uh, the I Earth thinking shots about gravity. I was thinking about Interstellar because mm. Interstellar has all those shots where the camera's fixed on the wing of the ship that look just like this. There's no way they were not influenced yeah. by the effects work in Interstellar because this felt extremely similar. Whereas in gravity, you have sort of a third-person omniscient view, like the camera flies all around oh, yeah. them and you can see from a million points of vantage. Whereas in this, just like in Interstellar, you got one no, vantage I was just point thinking and that's what you had to work with. Yeah, yeah. No, I was thinking of sort of the quality of oh. the way that the way they did the CGI actually looked, the small amount there was. Yeah. I wonder um, how much of this was CGI. A lot of this did feel like model work. Like the way he was looking out at the the side of the B fifty two before he's dropped in the X fifteen. Yeah. But I think that they took some, you know, they, they mixed real footage in. Um, there's a few, there's only a, uh, you know, it's yeah. funny cause I was kind of watching for that. There's a few bits of actual footage, but very little, almost all of this I think was made for it. There's one or two the bits. rocket launch. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> the Saturn V engine. Yeah. Um, that's shown up close and not much though. Not much yeah. though. Um, you know, they, they also kind of like, it's, it's sort of a thumbnail there's some sketch. Gene of, there's some real Gene Krantz in there. Oh, uh, like, I miss Gene. I didn't see that bit. Oh, you know, some, we, we had maybe no, no, it's Charlie. What's his name? The uh, Charlie Cap, Duke. Charlie Duke. Yeah, Charlie Capcom. Duke is the there's some real. Yeah, there's some real Charlie Duke. I mean, uh, we copy you down, Eagle. Um, <laughs> I, I could practically recite that whole thing. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting you know, is the chicks dig that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I discovered that very young. <laughs> um, you know, it's sort of a thumbnail sketch too. I mean, I, I mean, it's a long movie. It's two, it's it's close to two and a half hours, um, and they they cram a lot down. I was surprised at what they put in, and I was also surprised at what they left out. And for example, you know, they completely left out his service in Korea, which I thought would have been really interesting um you know uh, armstrong flew 78 missions in a jet in korea and he was really young um, wasn't he like he i think he was like 19 age. yeah yeah he's born in 1930 oh no, yeah so and, 20, he go, and he goes to the and he's called to the navy uh and when he's 19 yeah so he so he was a pilot at 19 for the navy although he had his pilot's license before so there's no mention of him in the navy at all and he had some fairly dramatic episodes when he was in the navy that have been documented a lot uh, he flew 78 combat missions they skip over that he goes to college after he flies in the navy right. that's where he met and his wife right that's how he meets jan um, and they skip all of that. And then the movie opens when he's already at Edwards and the X 15 flight they show in the movie is, is actually kind of two, two events jammed into one vignette. That's actually 
like the the one the episode where he went too high and the X fifteen became unaerodynamic because it was just above the air and he had to yeah. sort of bring it down so we could bite into the air. That's a, sort of one event, and then there's a bit where he lands out in the middle of the desert, and they have to come get him. Um, that's actually a separate event. So they sort of they sort of combine the two of them into one flight for the purposes of the film. Um, and then it was interesting that they did. They did sort of integrate into the the story, you know, his reaction to the passing of his daughter, Karen, who had a brain tumor. Yeah, because, you know, because so much of the movie is about trying to sort of give people a sense of who he was. And that was a very central event, at least the way the movie presents it. I'm sure it was an extremely significant event to him. But, I mean, the movie presents it in some ways as sort of half of his character is because of that or half of the way he is, um, or the way he sees the world. And I, I wonder, you know, I wanted to kind of talk about that because I wonder if that's the case, you know, like if his daughter hadn't died, would he have been very different? Because the movie suggests that, you know, the movie suggested if his daughter were alive, he might've been a little bit, um, looser, a little looser, a little more, a little less introverted, maybe a little, you know, um, a little happier. Maybe, maybe. Well, I mean, the other thing too is, I mean, I, had, I don't know how you'd ever recover from something like that. Oh, it's you know, maybe, awful. And they, they maybe, show you know, it. You, you could probably learn to function, but do you ever really get over something like that? And and they, it's well done, even though it's it's a very short space in the movie, it's well done. I mean, it sort of, it really does bring a tear to your eye watching. Um, well, and they, they literally show the child-sized coffin going into the ground. You hear the tick, 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 tick of right. the winch lowering the coffin. But then, you um, know, the space around that, even, even not at the funeral, but just her, they convey her treatment and that she's getting worse and that they all know what's happening. And then... The and they're funeral, kind of helpless in the face of it. Yeah, and, the, and he's trying to work. And the funeral... Uh, is just this horrible stillness afterward. You know, this it's it's uh, really really terrible. Um, and you know, he has he breaks down. He goes off by himself. Um, but and he do, he does that several times in the film. He goes yeah. off by himself. Like there's that bit where Ed White goes up to him in his yard mm -hmm. when when they've gotten bad news, and he says, you know, if I wanted to talk to someone, I wouldn't be out here all alone. Yeah, whenever he's upset, he goes off by himself, and they sort of. They they intimate to a certain extent that maybe that aspect, that sadness, and that requirement that that intractable um, sadness could be due to his daughter, uh, his daughter's death. Possibly, although other people said though that even before that he was a little bit reserved. You could imagine that it just made him more like that. Right. I mean, um, I I tend to think that people's personality is more set you know um i just it just seemed that it was sort of the movie suggested that that was possible i mean it at least uses it if you want to look at it in a just a really cold um script uh analysis viewpoint from a you know from that viewpoint then it's it's really like a, a focal uh fulcrum around which the movie will turn um is is his experience of his daughter's death and his reflection about it frequently even when he's you know when he's on the moon and at multiple points on the way there and whenever something bad happens he refers back to that and he sort of sees her in his mind's eye all the time right it's like a lodestar in his memory for tough times right um two things that i thought were interesting in this movie that um, one like that. They, I guess choices that they made. One is that, with the exception of uh, Claire Foy, who they do a good job of making look like the real Jan Armstrong. No one in this movie looks like who they're playing. And I thought, I mean, it was really striking to me. I thought Lucas Haas looked a little like Collins. Lucas Haas, who has about four words in this movie, looks a little <laughs> like Collins. He kind of does. I mean. I mean, really, Ryan Gosling doesn't look like Neil Armstrong. Jason Zero. Clark looks nothing, nothing at all like 
Ed White and Shea Wingham, if they hadn't said that he was supposed to be Gus Grissom, yeah, I would not have known that that was Gus Grissom. And Kyle Chandler also doesn't look at all like Deke Slayton. Like it was just they just sort of like threw that to the wind, and maybe they feel like Buzz Aldrin. Ah, it's been so Pretty long, good. no one knows. Corey Stoll. He didn't even look. I'm sorry. He didn't. I mean, Corey Stoll is a good actor, but he doesn't look anything like Buzz Aldrin. There's a couple all. pictures. There's a couple no, pictures man. where they get him. I, I'm 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 not gonna go with you on this one. <laughs> he wasn't. But they just kind of. But you know, they dress them in that sort of like '60s band lawn shirts look. But they, but it, they just they didn't feel like them at all. I thought that was that was an interesting choice. And the other thing that they completely dropped that I think is really important to the story is that Armstrong and, <clears throat> and Aldrin had a very strained relationship. Yeah. And none of that is in this at all. I mean, they just sort of paint Buzz as weird or, or sort of an odd guy. And there's one bit where, where Armstrong says to Aldrin, you know, essentially stop saying stupid things. Right. Don't be so annoying everybody. Right. And, and you don't, and you don't have to say every thought that, you know, crosses your brain. But, you know, like the story about Armstrong and Aldrin is, it's interesting. Like, like it was understood that the mission commander is the first one out. And, and Aldrin, partially on his own and partially under the influence of his father pushing him, Aldrin lobbied very hard that he should be the first one out. And he made some arguments about, like, look how we're standing and look where the door is. It really should be me. <laughs> and 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 it, he pushed so hard that he got called into to Deke's office. And they said, Neil's the first one out. And don't ever mention this again. Right. Um, you know, I thought, you know, that's an interesting part of the story because it changes the whole dynamic between the two men. Yeah. That they're competing in this tiny little space, you know, and 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 they know that this is going to be for all eternity the first guy out is going to be remembered. You know, obviously uh, Aldrin's still alive and I mean Armstrong had a, you know, he, he divorces Jan after, sometime down the road, but Armstrong's life is more stable than Aldrin's. Aldrin's life is marked by divorce and depression and alcoholism and all sorts of troubles. But, you know, Aldrin had the insight to say in an interview I saw with him that he actually thought it was better that Neil was the first person out because he thought that over the decades, Neil held up better than anybody else would have in terms of that sort of glare and spotlight, which I thought right. that was a pretty insightful thing for Buzz Aldrin to say. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the Gemini eight flight, um, where, uh, Armstrong and Dave Scott, um, have to, you know, abort the mission cause the thruster on, on the, uh, a Gemini gets stuck on, yeah. you know, and they have to abandon the Agena vehicle. You know, that's I've only seen that portrayed in one other place, and that's shown in uh, the Tom Hanks HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. Um, and it's shown there in, in a sort of a, a more clear way, like you get more of a sense of what's happening, because they also show it from the outside. Right, it's more uh, of a documentarian they, look at it. Right, and the scene in From the Earth to the Moon is also a little bit shorter, whereas the scene in this is longer, and you get a sense of how long they're spinning. Um, I, you know, it was, I thought it was interesting here because in the in the other version, they kind of portray Armstrong and um, Dave Scott getting along better, whereas here Armstrong is pretty short with Dave Scott mm -hmm. uh, during the mission, and you know, I'd have to double check and see which one is more correct because i mean like i said i've never heard of friction between armstrong and scott scott went on to command apollo 15 mm -hmm. uh, and walk on the moon but that was sort of interesting that they sort of conspicuously showed them sort of like not getting along so great yeah um and you know the the actual event itself i mean it is vertiginous it's very well done i thought I oh, mean, yeah. When, when you see that sort of roll indicator passing 360 telling you they're spinning more than once a second. Yeah. Uh, you know, they hint heavily that Scott passes out, although yeah. they don't actually say it. Well, they were, I mean, you, just the, the distress that they're under, I mean, is, is very, uh, it's very visceral in that scene. Because and he's they're showing... also, 
and they're also on the they're out of communication. Yeah. Right. They this is when they're sort of in between tracking stations and they can't really get any help while it's happening. Right. And um and they're trying to figure out what's going on and they're hampered by the fact that they are spinning with this crazy um geez uncontrollably. Um and it, and it only gets worse when they detach from the Agena and they try to fix it. Right. It actually got worse when they detached because yeah. they thought it was the Agena and it was them. Right. But they and had no then, way of knowing. Right. Exactly. And then all of a sudden the Agena, which was absorbing, you know, with its mass, was absorbing a lot of the the force of the stuck thruster. All of a sudden the same thruster was pushing on a much smaller object and they started accelerating. So right. they don't explain a ton of how they got out of it in the movie. So what they did is they, uh, they, the only other choice that they had was they had to activate the landing sequence so that they had access to a second set of thrusters that they would use for the reentry, uh, mm -hmm. the RCS. And then when they could do that, they were able to counterman the stuck thruster, but it essentially put into motion the reentry process. Although they realized while they were sort of playing with it, they figured out exactly which thruster it was. I think it was thruster eight, believe it or not. Uh, and, and then they were just able to isolate it and turn it off. But it happened again. Like once they got control of the ship, they started playing with the thrusters and figured out exactly which one it was. Hmm. Um, the other thing that I, I guess we have to talk about at length is the landing sequence. And, you know, I, I was stuck comparing this to the landing sequence in two other movies. One is um, the From the Earth to the Moon episode about Apollo 11. And the landing sequence in that is long. It's about a 10-minute sequence. Mm -hmm. And then um, a lower budget, but not bad version. There's a 1996 TV movie uh, about Apollo 11 that includes a fairly accurate landing sequence. So I'd sort of you know seen those two. And I, I've seen From the Earth to the Moon a couple times. Have you ever seen it? Yeah, yeah, I saw it back in the time it ran, and that was, that was what, about around 2000 or something like that? Yeah, before then, before then, I think it's like 98. It was, um, yeah, it was a big, uh, a big um, miniseries, basically. Yeah, it's 12 hours, and it, it does Mercury and Gemini in the first episode, and then the other 11 hours are Apollo. And it was based on Chaikin's uh, book, from, right, From right. the Earth to the from Moon. From the Earth to the Moon, yeah. right. Um but, you know, this was, I thought, an interesting way to do the landing sequence because, like I said, there's very few exterior shots. And the only real exterior shots of the lunar module you see are conceivably from Collins' view. Right. And then once they're out of Collins' view, there's, you know, you don't see that anymore. You just see it from the two of them inside the LEM looking out the window. Um, and, you know, they had, they had, built a little tension up by having Armstrong say at the press uh, briefing that he wished he was bringing more fuel with him to sort of set that stage. And then the landing mostly focuses on the program alarms, right? The 1201 and the 1202 program alarms that they keep getting and the fuel issue finally compounded by Armstrong going to manual um, and landing, landing, you know, essentially on his own, which they really hadn't planned on. Right. The idea, you know, the computer was supposed to take them down almost all the way. One thing that they didn't show in the movie is, is they reached some of their uh, their landing marks early, so they were they were going to go long because they got they got where they were supposed to go too soon, uh, hmm. and that's one of the reasons that they ended up sort of like almost putting down in that boulder strewn field, and then he has to take it over West Crater, which they show in the movie, and put it down right on the other side. Right. But they do a good job of conveying, you know, how much attention there was to the fuel situation and how they were very, very close to aborting. Yeah. No, it's also tense. You know, all this sort of high point, high tension scenes, um, it, the movie hits those scenes. You know, the movie, it's it's almost like, if you take cliff notes of the, the most significant events during that time, and then you stick in a bunch of sort of attempts to eliminate their theory or, uh, you know, the writer's take on something about Armstrong's character makeup, um, that's the movie. 
um, those two things. And, um, and, you know, you, you just, you, everything is close in, everything's subjective, as subjective looking as possible. Um, yeah, it, it's not right. That kind of tone poem, I think is the way you put it. It's a good way of putting it. It's, it's very, the movie's meant to sort of make it's, you feel things rather than just display events kind of the way the, from the earth to the moon did. And, the, and, and it did it well, that, that miniseries. Yeah. I mean, the movie is very somber, you know, yeah. like, like landing on the moon is like a fist pumping, punch the air kind of moment, you know, but they don't cut America. to Times Square until later when they're sort of showing the public reaction while they're there is entirely from the viewpoint of the two guys in the lamb. Right. And the time on the moon is very quiet. Right. Again, and you can imagine, you know, everybody on the earth is yelling and screaming. Yeah. But, you know, for them. You know, it's just the two of them and the and the flight director is looping in their ear. You know what I mean? Like that's it. Yeah. Um, I know. Like it was different. I was kind of unprepared for it. Like I was, I was kind of hoping for like maybe just one fist pump, but <laughs> it just wasn't like that. You know, like it just wasn't like that. Um. So I don't know. Like. You know, I saw with my wife who doesn't know a ton about this stuff and she really liked it. Like she walked out and she she was saying she thought it was terrific. It was a great movie. It really gave her a lot of insight into, you know, what it must have been like to go through that. So she really liked it. You know, I mean, I came in a little bit different sort of knowing a lot about the events. Sort of I didn't realize it was going to be like that, but I had a good time, but you know, I, I guess I wasn't prepared for such a serious, somber experience. So do you remember the book well enough to know, was the book more like From the Earth to the Moon than this movie? In the sense that, was it not so much about Neil Armstrong and himself and more about, you know, about his competency rather than about his makeup, maybe? Um, uh, well, it, the the book is nothing like From the Earth to the Moon. And I always say to people that if you want to read one book about the space program, read From the Earth to the Moon. Because Chaikin does a great job. I mean, From the Earth to the Moon is a big book, too. It's got to be six, 700 pages. It's uh, sweeping. But Chaikin, and, and he's you know. got a sort of breezier writing style. Whereas mm -hmm. Hansen is, he's more detail-oriented. And because he's focused on one subject for the entire time, he's able to go a lot deeper with it. Um, Jan is also a major player in the book as well. Um, <clears throat> what was I going to say? So, I mean, they're not, they're not really similar books at all. Yeah. But, you know, but was the book, so this movie is sort of opposite from the earth to the moon, right? That yeah, very style. much so. And the movie is the opposite from the, that miniseries as right. well. Right, the movie's opposite, but was the book, notwithstanding the style, do you remember, like, was it about Armstrong's personality, about subjectively, or about trying to understand something about the way Armstrong was uh, as a, as a know, human being? You know, I have to confess, I read it when it came out, and yeah. some of that I don't yeah, remember. I wonder. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I figured it's been a while. I, I think I might read it. I'm, I'm very curious about about it now even from that kind of filmmaking perspective did they was this the screenwriter you know and, and the director um that took this tack or was it in the was it in the biography i wonder yeah i don't remember i'd have to look i was actually thinking maybe i should reread it um so he and he and jan divorced after almost 40 years together um, although I think that Armstrong was already with his second wife by then. Like, I think that their relationship was already over at the time of their divorce. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Armstrong was famous for um, never giving autographs. Hmm. And a lot of the other moonwalkers don't give, uh, a lot of the other moonwalkers don't give autographs, but I think they kind of took it from Neil. Like, he just, didn't do it. Um, did you ever hear this thing about Neil Armstrong as a Muslim? <laughs> no. So this is like a widespread belief in the Muslim world uh, that Armstrong converted to Islam because of a song. It was like a hoax 
sort of like um, uh, there was a song, a pop song uh, about Armstrong converting to Islam that was popular in the Arab world. Um, and none of it is true, but it, like a lot of people throughout the Muslim world believe that Armstrong converted to Islam, like to the point that the State Department had to publicly say, Neil Armstrong has not converted to Islam. <laughs> <laughs> they should have just stayed quiet and let, because he wouldn't have said anything about it. He just sort of stayed quiet, you know? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. Well, you know, it's funny because you bring up an interesting point, and, and arms. so lots of stories about Armstrong are not true. Like, there's tons of stories about him that are not true, many of which... Uh, Hansen says we're started off by people who knew him in high school and like things he did in high school were really blown out of proportion. Um, and, and the tales of his early flying were greatly exaggerated and Armstrong just never bothered to correct people. Like he was aware of all these stories about him and he just decided that he couldn't run around and correct everybody all the time. And it was not worth his time. And he just, decided he wasn't going to say anything. So, like, Neil Armstrong didn't say, I'm not a Muslim. The State Department said it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, have you read um, Michael Collins' book? Mm -mm. So, Collins' book, it's called Carrying the Fire. It might be the best of the astronaut biographies. Hmm. And, you know, Collins has an interesting vantage point on things because – <clears throat> He's part of the Apollo 11 crew, so he gets, you know, he gets all the credit for being, you know, one of the three, but he was never, you know, in line to land on the moon, and he was removed from the fight between Armstrong and Aldrin. So, right. like, you know, his... And he also had the the sort of the experience that up to then had been unique. You know, Apollo 8 and Apollo 10 had orbited the moon, but he was alone in the command module. Mm -hmm. So he had the, he was the first person to orbit the moon alone. Mm -hmm. um, and if you ever get a chance, read Colin's book. It's really interesting. He came in as a Gemini astronaut. Yeah. Um, and uh, he ended up becoming, after his NASA career, he was the director of the National Air and Space Museum for a couple of years. Uh, yeah, he's still his, alive. Also, both he's both still Con alive. Yeah, Collins him and, and him, Aldrin. Yeah, right. They're both still alive. But they had, but his just his take on things, and he has a little bit of distance from the whole thing, hmm. uh, just because he was not in line to be a moonwalker. In some ways, the pressure was off of him, and he was, he, you know, his big worry is that he would be coming home alone because he trained to come home alone in case Neil and Buzz were killed. Right. So that was his big worry. And they just hinted that in the movie where he says, like, as they're getting the lunar module, like, well, you come back now, guys. Yeah. Um, but uh, in, the, in the book, he talks a lot about the concern of being alone and coming back alone. And then, you know, what that would mean and how he'd be stigmatized for the rest of his life if he was the one who came back while the other guys all died. Right. Um. This movie was directed by um, Damien Chazelle. I don't think I've seen his other films. I mean, he made, well, he made 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I did see. Uh, and he made La La Land, which I didn't see. But I think other than um, 10 Cloverfield Lane, I haven't seen any of his stuff. And, you know, for a guy who's only made a couple of movies, I mean, this is only his fourth movie that he's directed. Right, so he did. Oh, actually, he he, he wrote, wrote Ten Cloverfield yeah. Lane. Right, yeah. so he did Guy and Madeline on a park bench, which I never heard of. He did Whiplash, which everyone says is great about mm. drumming, uh, which I didn't see, and I didn't see La La Land. I think I might be one of the few people who didn't see La La Land because everybody seems to have. And this, uh, so I mean, this is pretty impressive for his fourth film. Mm-hmm. And I guess he got Ryan Gosling from La La Land. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he's, all, yeah, I was going to say, God damn it, he's only 33. Like, it makes me feel sort of like good that he's so young doing this stuff and a little bit jealous that he's doing this <laughs> stuff so young. But uh, this is, you know, you got to admit that this is a, this is a pretty pr impressive film for, you know, for a young director to make. I mean, I thought this was the work of somebody much older and much more experienced from the way that this thing looks and feels on screen. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's it's really it has a very intentional um, style to it. There, there, it was very. It has a well thought out um, vibe that's consistent through the whole thing. It's carefully made. I mean, it, it's tremendous. I mean, like I said, it the movie's tremendously in close up, but all of that is just to make it engaging. And maybe maybe one of the reasons he gets away with so much is he keeps the focus on Armstrong. You know, he never really overreaches his subject matter, right? right. All this stuff is happening, but you're always very very focused on. On Armstrong, I guess we should talk about Claire Foy a little bit. By the way, did your um, did your uh, movie come with a trailer for the Girl in the Spider's Web, uh, the next that, Dragon Tattoo movie? Yeah, yeah. Is that is that's that a, Claire Foy? Uh, that's okay. Claire Foy playing Elizabeth Salander. Interesting. In that. I thought that was sort of an interesting thing to see. He didn't. What's his name? Didn't write that, right? That's like a po posthumous. Uh, right. Yeah. Book, no, I right? think they realized there's too much money. Oh man, yeah, uh, not to keep missed, going. The guy missed it all. <laughs> well, he died. <laughs> I, I know, I know, but like, you know, Steve he, Larson. Yeah, um, yeah. But you know, she's I thought she's pretty good in this. I mean, um Jan Armstrong, I don't know if she's reverted back to her old name. She's still alive and she actually kind of looks the same. Like if you see pictures of her in the 60s and pictures of her now, she doesn't look that different. Mm. Um she's got that smoker voice. Like when you hear her talk now, she's got that <laughs> lifetime smoker voice. Right. Um and you know, they you know, you could imagine that, you know, lots of movies and TV shows including like um uh, I think it was called First Wives or something like that, uh, have sort of focused on the, the lives of the astronauts' wives and how difficult it was and how brittle they all got from years of the sort of stress and tension and life and death of it all. Uh, but she was good in this, you know? I mean, you kind of got their sense that their their marriage was, you know, tense and maybe not so happy. Yeah. Uh, but they were committed to each other, even if they weren't having such a good time of it. Right. She's on, uh, do you watch uh, The Crown? She plays no. Queen Elizabeth in The Crown, which I haven't seen, but my wife has seen. And that's that's, that's uh, Queen Elizabeth II's show. But that's apparently something quite good. But, you know, maybe that's not so in my wheelhouse, you know, 20 hours on Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> but but uh, by all accounts, it's a great show. <laughs> Have you seen it? No, I haven't. <laughs> Uh, but it was interesting that she, you know, that she came up in a trailer for a different movie. I thought that was really interesting. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I think this is. I think this is a good movie. I, I don't know if it's going to do huge box office, just in the sense that I don't know. I don't know how many people are going to see this more than once. Do you know what I mean? And I, I think that, I think that this is not being pitched at young viewers. No, and you know, well, what's interesting is, um, like on Rotten, when I looked up the time for the movie, uh, I use Flickster, and it gives you Rotten Tomatoes um, um, scores, and the critics' score was quite high, and the audience score was significantly lower. Like the critics' score was in the nineties, and the audience score was like sixty or something. Well, and I think people were expecting a little bit more of what other astronaut movies and TV shows have done. Yeah, I I, you know? I think I think people were expecting a little more red meat, um, and a little less the crown. a little more daring do. <laughs> well, and like you know, I was also thinking while I was watching this about the right stuff. Yeah, um, and the right stuff, you know, just like a three hour and change movie. Yeah, um, you know, the right stuff goes much faster than this, and it's it's significantly longer. Yes, um, this movie is not. It's not a uh, not very quick. I I actually really I think I liked it more than you did. I, I really yeah, liked I didn't, it. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think I disliked it. I think I thought I would have had a little more fun with it, and yeah. it wasn't really like that. I mean, I remember when I saw the right stuff, the the nineteen ninety nineteen eighty three Phil Kaufman uh, movie. I'm just sort of looking to see how long. It's a hundred and ninety two minutes. That's the long movie. It was two VHS I, tapes. It was two VHS tapes. Uh, I'm looking, by the way, I'm looking at my copy of The Right Stuff, my two VHS tape copy, just over in my bookshelf. Um, but, man, you walked out of The Right Stuff, 
you know, with just a huge grin on your face. You know, it's got that soaring score. Um, you know, it looks great. That Bill Conti score, it, it looks great. It's got sort of like a who's who of great actors in it, right? It's got Scott Glenn and Ed Harris, uh, Dennis Quaid, Sam Shepard, Barbara Hershey, right? Fred Ward. I mean, everyone's in it. Yep. Um, but it's and, based you know, on a Tom Wolfe book that has a lot of it is based on Tom humor. Wolf. Right. It. And a lot of that sort of humor and levity gets built into it, even amidst all of it. But the movie finishes with, you know, Gordon Cooper's flight and it's, you know, this sort of rallying music at the end. And I remember just walking out of that and my dad said to me, you know, it had the right stuff. And I said, what? And he said, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, this, people just kind of walked out and quietly threw their empty popcorn containers in the trash. Yeah, and they were depressed. Cars. They weren't depressed, but, <laughs> you know, the other thing, too, that this movie didn't give is it didn't have, it didn't have a little text at the end. Like, I was 100% certain the text crawl at the end would say that Armstrong and Jan divorced yes, many me too. years later. I expected that. And it didn't that. do that. It went I straight to it, credits. Right. I thought it would say he retired. You know, he did it. He had to do a year-long publicity, global publicity tour and then retired and never, you know, right. almost never gave to interview and Lebanon, Ohio. Right. right. Yeah, no, and they didn't do any of that. It just sort of, it just sort of I liked cuts it that off. Way, though. Like I, I liked that they didn't deliver every expectation. I, I have to say, um, and I haven't, I haven't seen his other movies, but apparently that is his one of his trademarks. Is that the last scene of all of his movies is the two main characters just looking at each other? Apparently, he's done hmm. that in his other films, which I didn't know until I read about it. I want to see his other stuff. I mean, you know, the right stuff. Um, you know, left you feeling excited about life. And this movie left you pondering mortality. You know, that's yeah. the difference, you know. Uh, no, it's true. It's uh, true. And, and the right stuff, you know, the right stuff plays with the risk of, you know, being a test pilot or being an astronaut. And the only real danger you feel in the right stuff is it's, it's sort of post hoc and you're told in the right stuff by the narrator, who's the Jack Ridley character, at the end of the movie, like right before the credits roll, that some of the characters you've seen later would die. <laughs> right. And that's it. Whereas you don't really see anything else. You're sort of aware of the danger and they have a couple close calls, right? Like they saw Jaeger in the X1A or Jaeger in the 104 or Glenn's flight where there's danger, but they always come out grinning. Yeah. And and this, this you know, Corvettes. they have to show Grissom, White, and Chaffee dying in Apollo one. And I thought, you know, that's been shown in a couple of other shows and movies too. And I thought this was sort of the best I'd ever seen it done. The way that they show the fire is very, very quick. Um, you know, they're calling for help and then the, the pressure capsule ruptures, you know, yeah. and then some smoke sort of wisps out. Like I thought that was an interesting way to show it. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say real quick is uh, just since we're talking about uh, Apollo 1 in the context of this movie, I think that Jason Clark, um, you know, he's having a good year. Like his role as Ed White, like he's he doesn't look like Ed White, but he does a good job as Ed White. Yeah. And he, he was Ted Kennedy in Chappaquiddick, which uh, we have a little mini podcast episode on mm -hmm. um, from earlier this year. I mean, I think between those two uh, appearances, like I'm really impressed with him. Um, and to sort of paraphrase a, a comment I made in the in the Chappaquiddick podcast, like I can now forgive him for the awfulness that is Terminator Genesis because he's <laughs> it's so bad, it's just terrible. Uh, um, but he's he's you know like he's really kind of like put that behind him. Although in all fairness, nothing at all is good in Terminator Genesis. Absolutely <laughs> nothing at all. Even Amelia Clark, who I really really like, is just awful in that. Um, geez. Did you ever see Terminator Genesis? No. I like, won't watch any science fiction movie bottom unless it's, of barrel you know. scraped. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, anything that's going back to an old franchise these days is usually, I mean, it's always the case they're going to suck, but these days especially because there's, they're, I mean, nobody's, they're, they're making those for the theater and people going to the theater to see that stuff it's you're always going to be disappointed although wait it gets worse right 
So I love the Terminator. Wait, wait. I love the Terminator. I absolutely love the Terminator. I even love the Terminator 2 more. Like, I actually think T2 is a rare example of the sequel being better than the first one. I always talk about T2 as like the exception that proves the rule. T3 Star Trek 2. T3, right. T3 is tolerable. You know, they have Nick Stahl in the Ed Furlong role. And then Terminator Salvation, unwatchable. Terminator Genesis, an abomination. (laughs) And Wikipedia has just informed me that in 2019, we will have (laughs) Terminator 6. Oh, my God. Well, at least they're going back to numbers. Oh, Terminator 6. You know what the worst thing about Terminator 6 is? I'm probably going to see it. You are? You're nuts. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to go to the theater, but if I'm on a plane, and I'm on a plane a lot, and Terminator 6 is there. Like, I watch Terminator Salvation and Terminator Genesis on planes. So, you know, if, I, if I've got a five-hour flight and Terminator 6 is there, you know, I'm going to punch up punch it up in the seat back screen. and like, ah, whatever. So at some point, I'll see it. But anyway. You better order um, a gin and tonic before that thing. <laughs> if I'm in first. Um <laughs> Any last thoughts on uh, First Man? No. I, I'm, I think oh, I'm going to oh, read oh, the book. Oh, 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 wait. One other thing is they did a great job with Armstrong's ejection from the Lunar Lander research vehicle. That yeah. was a great scene. And, the, you know, there's no intro to it. They don't explain anything. You just, you just from the way the visuals are done, you you figure out immediately that he's training to land on the moon. Yeah. Um, and that scene I thought was really well done. And that scene's been done and that was in the, from the earth to the moon. They show that explicitly in from the earth to the moon. And it's, they're, they're both scenes are done very well. Whereas I think this scene sort of captured sort of like the rapidity with which things went sour. Yeah. Um, but anyway, if you get it, you know, if you get a chance, watch it's on YouTube, watch the way that they did the lunar landing scene and from the earth to the moon. Um, it's pretty interesting and they do a good job of it. Hmm. By the way, Brian Cranston plays Buzz Aldrin in the From the Earth to the Moon version. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. All right. Should we wrap there? Anything else? Nope. I'm gonna go. I I wanna read the book now. Yeah, it's totally worth it. I remember I really enjoyed it at the time. And as I was watching the movie, I was thinking maybe I should reread it. Yeah. All righty. All right, everybody. We'll be back next week. Uh, We're debating where our next film is, but we've got a couple on the list. So we'll be back next week with another podcast. Terminator 6. (laughs) Terminator 6. Terminator Salvation. Oh, God. (laughs) We could do a dual, dual podcast. Ugh. You know, but it shows you, you know, uh, like there's a time to stop, you know, like this will be my last comment for the podcast. Like <laughs> there is a time to stop. Like there's a time to stop this podcast and that's now. And there's a time not to make any more Terminator movies. And that was 2003 <laughs> after Terminator 3. Like that's the time to not make any more Terminator movies. All right. Un- I'm going to stop. Unfortunately, that. that's my last comment. <clears throat> unfortunately, Unlike us, uh, the only time they stop is when the money runs out. Mm. And, the, and the money ran out on this podcast a long time ago. <laughs> oh, we're, we're still building up to the money. Maybe. All right, everybody. All right, good good night. Lord. Bye. <laughs>